1999. Preparation for the crisis of Revelation 13. Well, we must identify that crisis. So let us turn to the scriptural record, Revelation chapter 13. And we'll commence at the 15th verse. And he, speaking of the United States of America, had power to give life unto the image of the beast. That beast, of course, is the papacy. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now, Seventh-day Adventists are used to speaking about a universal death decree at the end of time. How do we know that this is universal? Could it be that only some countries will receive this death decree and in fact other nations will be spared no it cannot be so this is a universal death decree for scripture plainly testifies to that fact verse 16 and he causeth all Notice that word all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Verse 17, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Now here we see, my dear brothers and sisters, a great crisis which will be universal. I don't care whether you are a multi-billionaire, and I suspect we don't have a large number of those here uh, today, or whether you are poverty-stricken. This decree will apply to you. Yes, it may commence in the United States, as the Bible indicates, but we are told, the book Maranatha, that every nation on earth will follow America's lead in this matter. Every nation. So that includes the United Kingdom. And we are told that there's going to be an economic boycott. You know, sometimes we think, well, that's not as bad as some other things. And it isn't, I suppose. It's not as bad as being put to death, unless you have no way of finding food and water. My brother and I write to one another at least twice a week. What's going to happen when you cannot buy even a postage stamp. You cannot buy a telephone call or place a fax. We're going to be isolated, my dear brothers and sisters. You can't buy an airline ticket or a boat ticket. And I'm afraid the Pacific Ocean is too wide for me to swim. You know, it's going to cause hardships of relationships, especially when it's a time when there will be persecution. Can you imagine being concerned about loved ones? Maybe not so far from you. Maybe in your own country. But you cannot travel to them because you cannot buy petrol for your vehicle. 
you cannot purchase a bus ticket or a train ticket because you cannot buy anything. But then it's worse. You've got a little baby. And maybe the mother's unable to feed that baby. Sometimes that happens. And you can't buy a substitute milk for the baby or food for your children. This will be a time of awful crisis. And there are going to be many Seventh-day Adventists, if we understand Scripture aright, who will yield their faith rather than suffer such a hardship. And I have to ask myself the question, where will I stand at that time? Now, God has given us some wonderful advice for that period, and that is to go a little out into the countryside where you've got enough room to have a little garden. You may not be able to feast like Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, but you will have the sustenance of life. Some fruit trees, maybe a well or a tank or something where you can get water because you won't be able to purchase city water at that time. Sister White seems to indicate that that will be possible. Of course, I always think of, well, what, but what about if you can't uh, buy, how do you pay your, uh, your land rates? You know, I guess you get the same as we do. We say we have freehold land freehold title but when the local council comes around they don't see the word free in the title you have to pay every year your rates on that land but somehow it must be possible for that period of time I've just got that faith because why else would Sister White say for that time grow your own foods grow your own uh, fruits and have a little land. I find, though, some Seventh-day Adventists, very faithful, are making a very big mistake. Maybe it's not quite so easy to do it in this country, but in Australia it's easy. It's easy in um, South America, where I find this mistake being made, and in uh, some parts of the United States. They are reading about country living... And they are going off into the wilderness, far from any uh, towns, even tiny towns, of habitation. You know, Sister White did not tell us to do that. She said we're to go close to the cities. For God has given us a work to do. We have to have a mission field. We can be monastic and say we'll escape everything by going way out. But what sort of a witness? Who's going to witness to London, uh, to Birmingham, and uh, to the major cities of this nation if we are so far away that we cannot enter those cities or can rarely go forth in witness? And so God is saying, go out into the country, but make sure you're still a witness. You can go into those evil cities. And you can witness and witness faithfully to the millions who need to hear the gospel message in the mighty cities of this old earth. And then there is the death decree. You know, a lot of people ask me, do I believe that the 144,000 is a literal number? You know, that's... That's been around since I can remember as a boy. Is it a literal number? My answer is absolutely yes. It is literally 144,000 who will go through the time of trouble. Not one more, not one less. God doesn't deal in approximations. Why do I say that? Why can I feel confident about it? Because when we study the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, we find that they are full of symbols and numbers. For example, Daniel 2, there are ten toes. 
Is that literal or is it symbolic? What is it symbolic of? The ten kingdoms into which the Roman Empire was decimated. But what about the number? Literal or symbolic? Absolutely literal. Is that right? What about Daniel 7? Ten horns. Are the horns literal horns? Absolutely not. But what about the ten? Literal. It's not 11 nations. It's not nine nations. It is ten nations. What about the 1,260-day prophecy? Is the day literal? No. It's symbolic of a year. But what about the number 1,260? Absolutely literal. What about the 2,300 days? Exactly the same. What about the three horns? Exactly the same. A, A symbol, but the numerical value is absolutely literal. The same with the 42 months and so forth in prophecy. Wherever there are numbers in Daniel and Revelation, they're absolutely literal. Now we come to the 144,000. Are they just Jewish people because there's 12,000 from this tribe and that 12,000 from that tribe? Or is that symbolic? It's symbolic. It's symbolic of those who are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God's people, whatever the race. But all of a sudden, I find many Seventh-day Adventists, although going through all those other prophecies and seeing 100% that in these prophecies, always, without a single exception, the number is literal, even though it is associated with a symbol, all of a sudden, when it comes to the 144,000, they think that God changes his pattern of working. Not at all. Not at all. Then a lot of people say, what hope have I got? Six billion people in the world, only 144. I'm sure I'm not in the top rung of the 100. I tell you, brothers and sisters, pray God that you are. But remember that just before the close of probation, there are going to be a lot more faithful people than 144,000. Doesn't Sister White tell us? that the Lord is going to lay to rest faithful people, heaven-bound people, people who will receive the crown of life, but they're too old or too weak to go through the time of Jacob's trouble. Or they're too young. Some Some children will be laid to rest. Or maybe they are of an age where normally you would expect that they... If anyone could go through, they would go through. But God can see that constitutionally, godly people, people who love the Lord with the whole heart, but it's going to take some special sort of constitution to go through that time of trouble such as never was, a tribulation that none has ever before endured. So my dear brothers and sisters... There are going to be many of those faithful people at the end of time. Not just 144,000, more than that. But God lays them to rest just for a short time. And they died in the rejoicing in the three angels' messages. And they will be raised just before Christ comes at that special resurrection. We, We have that promise that all who die in the three angels' message, the faith, will be raised in that special resurrection and then there are going to be many martyrs during this period none after the close of probation of course although the all the signs are that there's going to be an awful slaughter but God will prevent that slaughter but there are going to be many martyrs brothers and sisters I really don't know whether I'm looking into the eyes of some who will have that red hem to their gown in heaven. Sister White says the martyrs will have. There will be a special place. I don't wish it upon anyone, except that I wish and pray, I more than wish, that if it is necessary, 
And if God calls us to such martyrdom, that we will remember the last part of Revelation 2.10. Let us say it together. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. One of the greatest promises of Scripture. But none of us has the faith of a martyr now. That is absolutely certain. Not one of us has the faith of a martyr. And this time, this combination of the power of the United States and the religious zeal of the Vatican is going to lead to martyrdom of God's people. So don't be discouraged and say only 144,000 at the end of time. Yes, those who go through the time of trouble will be 144,000. In a sense, it's not a small number when uh, we're told in Scripture that when the Lord cometh, shall he find faith in the earth? There is going to be so little faith in the earth that the question is almost asked, is anybody going to be faithful? Brothers and sisters, at the time of the close of probation, there will be upon this earth 144,000 people, not in one nation, but scattered in little tiny enclaves all around the world. Pray that if it is God's plan that we come to that time, that all of us will be ready. But there is a crisis, and the great test is going to be on the Sabbath. We want to look in a moment on that great test. But before we do, we need to examine what is the preparation to be ready? What preparation may we be making in this, on this day, the third day of July, 1999? What preparation may we be making for the crisis that is soon to be thrust upon us? You know, in a single sentence, the answer is we must be preparing to receive the seal of the living God. Every individual who receives the seal of the living God will be saved. No exception. And every individual who does not possess the seal of the living God will be destroyed. You know, if you just read this passage here, that there will be a death decree and there will be an economic boycott upon everyone who does not receive the mark of the beast, you might say, well, I better find out what this mark of the beast is. I'm sure none of us want to go through an economic boycott. We're not masochistic types, Seventh-day Adventists. None of us want to be put to death. We're not suicidal in our nature. So if we just read this passage, we should say, well, look, let's find this mark of the beast. Let's get it. It'll save us from death. It will save us from a dreadful economic boycott. But then we study the next chapter. And the third angel's message, and you know what that says, verse 9 of chapter 14, and the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image. Now, I want you to stop and think for a moment. The big issue at the end of time is that issue of worship. If any man worship the beast and his image. We read in verse 8 of chapter 13, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. And we uh, uh, read in verse 15 of chapter 13, uh, and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Worship, worship, worship. Seventh-day Adventists are not deluded in pointing out that the big test at the end of time is the test of worship. I find some people 
who are so uh, misled in this matter today that they're saying, we can't imagine that worship and Sabbath will be a test at the end of time. That will not... Brothers and sisters, let's not rely upon our own foolish minds. Let us rely upon the word. The issue is worship, and we'll see in a moment, it is Sabbath worship. And then it goes on to say, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. We've got two prospects before us, and they're daunting prospects, very daunting. If we receive the mark of the beast, we will receive the wrath of God. If we reject the mark of the beast, we will receive the wrath of man. Wrath, whichever way we turn. But my dear brothers and sisters, how mild is the wrath of man compared with the wrath of God. How wonderful it is when the wrath of man is turned upon us that we have the comfort of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. None will have such comfort when the wrath of God is poured out. There really is no sane choice. The decision is let us be on the Lord's side. And every morning we should ask God to keep us on the Lord's side. And so we can see from the study of the word that the issue of the mark of the beast is the crucial issue at the end of time. <clears throat> but there's another mark that we've already mentioned, the seal of the living God. It's first mentioned by those terms in chapter 7. Of Revelation. I know it's mentioned, of course, in Ezekiel 9 as the mark that is placed upon the forehead of those who sigh and cry for the abominations. That is the seal of the living God. But the first time it is described <coughs> as the seal of the living God in those exact words, of course, is in the book of Revelation. Verse 2 tells us, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Who are going to be sealed? What are the words that are used? Servants. The servants of God. Our brother was correct. They're the faithful. The term used here is they are the servants of God. You know, there is no better servitude than to be a servant of God and of his people. Who does God regard as his servants? Is it those who are arranging the uh, fellowship dinners every Sabbath, well, they have a work to do. But that's not the criterion of being a servant of God. Uh, Brother Mick says, those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. I don't think anyone would stand here in dispute of that statement, would they? Of course they are. Uh, they are the ones. Let's turn to Romans 6.22. Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. <clears throat> and there we read, But now being made free from sin and become servants of God. So who are the ones who are servants of God? Those who are free from sin. That's right. Ye have your fruit unto holiness. Freedom from sin is to be in a state of holiness. 
and the end everlasting life. So what must we prepare to be? What preparation can we make for this awesome crisis where we have to make a decision for the Lord? We will receive the wrath of man, no question about that. It will be a crisis time. The preparation is a preparation to be free from sin or to be holy. They are synonymous terms. Holiness. And so those who will receive the seal of the living God, and we must not be deceived on this matter, are those who are free from sin. Those who have allowed the Holy Spirit to transform their lives. Who in His power and in his mighty love, have been freed from the burden of sin. And what a burden it is. A tremendous burden. You know, the reason that Christ came to set us an example was so that he could take the chains of sin around us. You know, a lot of people, sometimes they're young, sometimes they're not so young who decide that they want to get rid of all these restraints that they feel that they have in Christ. There's not one single restraint in Christ. If we want to be free, let us be the servants of Christ. Then we are free indeed. But the moment we yield ourselves to Satan, we have the most terrible servitude we have the most terrible bounds, worse than the greatest iron chains around us, and we are incapable, without calling upon the Lord, to move in any direction of our own volition. We are being just puppetized by Satan. That's what we're doing. And so we realize that God is going to place his seal upon those who humbly, day by day, prepare to meet him. <clears throat> I think all of us have struggles in our lives. I know we do. The devil hasn't given anyone a free passage into heaven. We all have struggles. Some matters which are easy for some, are difficult for others, and vice versa. But the devil knows our weaknesses, and he plies his temptations mercilessly at those weaknesses. And it is a struggle. You know, sometimes we have misconceptions Conceptions. I don't think so many people seem to these days, but when I was a little boy, I knew that somehow the devil didn't seem to tempt any of the pastors I knew. Oh, if only I could be like that pastor. He doesn't have all the temptation to sin like I have. He's so righteous, he's so pure. That's what I used to think. And I remember Colin and I discussing the big advantages pastors had over terrible uh, scallywags like we were. My dear brothers and sisters, the devil tempts pastors more than anyone else. And sometimes the sins that we hang on to, the sins that we don't take the trouble to overcome are such unbelievably foolish things. I know in my own life uh, how foolishly, even though I knew the counsels of the Lord, I have rejected those counsels and gone my own way. I think <clears throat> of one, it's, it, all sin is embarrassing. All sin is embarrassing. But I think of one problem that I've faced in my own life for, for decades. And that's the problem of sport. Now you look at, 
you know, an old 65-year-old man, and you know he could never have done one ounce of anything athletic in his whole life. I mean, uh, just look at him. How could he? But my dear brothers and sisters, Colin and I were addicts to sports and very successful. What's that? I'm an Australian, but you don't have to be an Australian to be silly about sport. I know what happens with the FA Cup here in England. <laughs> it's just the same as Australia. It's the same in South America. It's the same in North America. You go wherever you go. But we're Seventh-day Adventists. We know what Sister White has said about sport. One day, one evening, 10 o'clock in the evening in the late 1890s, she was down in Sydney at at one of the streets called Martin Place. That's where the great uh, GPO is, uh, General Post Office is. It was 10 o'clock at night. Now, she knew full well that they weren't selling postage stamps at 10 o'clock at night. But there were a throng of thousands of people. I think this was 1898. Thousands and thousands of people standing there at the post office. And she, she was sort of perplexed. What all these people, 10 o'clock at night, around the post office? And so they, she asked one of the Australians who was with her, what are all these people doing? Uh, what are they up to? Oh, they said, there's a cricket test between Australia and England going on in England. And they want the scores. And every over, they were sending a wire telling what the batsman had scored in that period and what the bowler had done and if anyone had been dis... And this was the only way. They didn't have instant television like we have today, satellite television. These people were standing outside the post office and they kept posting after each over what the score was. Sister White was appalled at the Australians, and rightly so. She says, that is a species of idolatry. That was the term she made. In other words, when Colin and I were involved in sport, both playing it and, uh, of course, uh, watching it, we were idolaters. How many idolaters will get into the kingdom of heaven? No. You know... Our keen interest in sport was so great that it was, it has just taken year after year after year for us to give up that, that sin. I mean, it's got to the place, Glennis knows what I'm trying to do now. If I look at the news and then comes on the sport, I have to go and turn it off. Otherwise, I'm fascinated back with... I'm back. When I buy a newspaper, I throw away the sports section because if I start to read it, the old, you know, idolatry comes back again. And, you know, I, I am ashamed. I mean, Colin, in the sport that we, he played best twice beat the Australian national champion. He beat the New Zealand champion. When, I mean, we're not, talking about, um, uh, we're not talking about just playing a game, you know, for a bit of fun or in a local competition. We're talking about at the highest level. Uh, although none of you will believe it now, I know. But <laughs> nevertheless, we were Seventh-day Adventists. Of course we did not play on Sabbath. I can still remember when Colin won the combined Australian University singles championship in this sport. It was played on a Friday afternoon. And he won the first two sets. And it was a best of five sets. And he could see the Sabbath hours were coming. And so he started to panic, I've got to get this next set to the point where he lost it. Had to go to another set. And he said, Lord, I know I can still finish five sets, but I won't have time to shower and be ready for Sabbath. So if I lose the fourth set, I have to forfeit the title. He won 
the fourth set with a net cord and won the title. But nevertheless, he was an idolater. I mean, he... I'm not saying this against my brother because I was an equal idolater. And the concept that, well, I better be ready for the Sabbath. Oh, yes, there was virtue in that. But when he had sin, when I have sin, unrepentant, unforsaken, did I keep the Sabbath holy? Did he keep the Sabbath holy? Or we might not have played any sport, and we didn't, between sunset and sunset. But you cannot be a Sabbath keeper, my dear brothers and sisters, if you have a true Sabbath keeper, if you have sin unconfessed and unforsaken in your lives. But there are many sins like that, many sins in our lives. And my dear brothers and sisters, it is not worth the loss of heaven to continue in sin because all sin is a form of idolatry. We are putting that sin before our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Isn't all sin a breach of the first commandment? Of course it is. Every sin. And so here we have the people who will be saved. Those people who will be saved, are those who are servants of God. And we just read in the book of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 22, that they are those who've ceased from sin. They are those who have holiness. Holiness. What is the seal of the living God? If we go over to Romans, uh, to Revelation 14, verse 1, we notice that the same people are there, this 144,000. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Revelation 7 describes it as the seal of the living God. Revelation 14, the father's name written in the forest. Christ's name, uh, God's name is his character. They have the character of God, the character of Christ. What is the character of Christ? If we want to be ready for this crisis of Revelation 13, we must have the character of Christ. For the seal of the living God is his character. Very plainly, it's his character. So what is this uh, character? You know, the Bible summarizes it with just two criteria. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, verse 21. And there we read that well-known statement, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Well, what sort of an example was Christ? He was an example in character. That was the whole reason that he was 34 years to accomplish his task, that he could be our example. And then in verse 22, the two characteristics of Christ's character, which embraced the purity of his character are summarized. One who did no sin. He was a servant of God. We are to be a servant of God. And the second characteristic, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, if we are to be part of the 144,000, if we are to receive the seal of the living God, we must have the character of Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, do the 144,000 achieve those criteria? Well, let's look at verse 5 of chapter 14 of Revelation. Speaking of 144,000, it says, And in their mouth was found no guile. So they have met that criterion of the character of Christ. And now listen. 
for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, any individual with sin, unconfessed and unforsaken, is not without fault before the throne of God. They're very guilty before the throne of God. These people have precisely the same two criteria of character that Christ had. No guile, no sin remaining in their life. Oh yes, they've been sinners. But in the power of God, they have overcome every temptation and every trial. What's the synonym for the 144,000 in the scripture? What about the remnant? Wouldn't that they be a synonym? Yes. The end of time, the remnant and the 144,000 will be one and the same people. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 13. Zephaniah 3, 13. And here again we see that the remnant also possess the same two criteria. They have no sin and no guile. What is guile? It's deception. It is falsehood, lying. That is guile. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, no sin, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. So, brothers and sisters, here we are. We find that God's people must develop the character of Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful promise of God that he will give us his character. And the seal of the living God is the character of Christ. But you know there's an external evidence of that seal. We all know that that seal of God is akin to the seal of the, every ruler during the biblical times. Those seals that were so important. There are still seals today that are very, very important. And the seal of God has the same three characteristics. They had three mandatory characteristics, those seal. The name of the ruler, the authority of the ruler, and the territory over which he ruled. We, one of the best known seals was the seal that Pilate placed upon the grave of Christ. What a futile seal that was. To seal in the Son of God so that he could not be raised from the dead. How futile. But it's one we know about very well. That had those three mandatory characteristics. Pilate's name, Pontius Pilate. His authority, governor. His territory of jurisdiction, Judea. Contained all the three features. And God's seal does the same. It contains his name, his authority, and also it contains the territory over which he rules. This morning, we heard about the first verse of the Bible. Was it this morning? Sometime during our time here. So let's go back to the first verse of Scripture. <clears throat> In the beginning, God, there's his name, created, there is his authority, the heavens and the earth. There is the territory over which he rules. My brothers and sisters, many times that first verse of Scripture is read, but very few times is it identified as the first presentation in Scripture of the seal of the living God. Why does it occur, the seal of God occur in the very verse, verse of Scripture? It's because it is the preeminent theme of Scripture, is the salvation of mankind. And God, in the word that he has given to us, is proclaiming, I want you 
to receive my seal. It is the greatest gift that I can give to you. Oh, please receive the seal of the living God. And so he commences Scripture with the very first verse, the offer of the seal. He concludes his last message to mankind with the seal. Revelation 14, the first angel's message contains the seal of the living God. Revelation 14, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, there is his name, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made, there is his authority, the creator, heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters, the territory over which he rules. So God commences scripture with the seal of the living God. He concludes his work for mankind with the last message, offering the seal of the living God. That is why the first angel's message and the third angel's message are put in counterbalance. In summary, of course there are four aspects and we don't have time to go into them. Very detailed aspects of the first angel's message. But in summary... God is pleading, please, I'm offering you the seal of the living God, eternal life. And in the third angel's message, he's warning. This is the most strident verses in scripture of the third angel's message. But God is telling us as clearly as it is possible for us to understand. How terrible it will be to receive the mark of the beast. And so the first angel's message is a message, please, please receive my great gift, the seal of the living God. And the third angel's message, I love you so much. I want you to know what the mark of the beast will be like. Please, he's pleading with mankind, do not receive this dreadful mark of the beast. Both are equally loving. One sounds more loving than the other. But when we understand our God is asking us from the bottom of his heart, we realize that the third angel's message with its very strident language is God as a loving father warning his children, please, please, don't accept the seal of the living God. And what a symmetry there is in the three angels' messages. The first, the offer of the seal of the living God. The third, the warning against receiving the mark of the beast. And the central one, the religion of Babylon, the wine of the wrath of her fornication, the mixture of truth and error, the mixture of the religion of Christ with the religion of Satan, the mixture of the sacred and the profane, Christ places right in the middle. And there's a reason for our response and our attitude to the religion of Babylon will determine whether we receive the seal of the living God or the mark of the beast. If we reject the religion of Babylon, we will receive the seal of the living God. But if we, we accept it, we will receive the mark of the beast. So it's a small passage of scripture, but full of meaning in these last days. And we need to be ready. We need to prepare to receive that seal, which internally is the character of Jesus. Now we know that it is concerned with the commandments, because the 12th verse of Revelation 14 tells us, here is the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God. And we go back to those commandments to see where the seal is in God's commandments. Because the servants of God, the one who receive the seal, are those who are without sin. In other words, who keep the commandments. And we find that we can check all nine from one to three and from five to ten commandments. 
and not one of them has the three mandatory features of the seal. Four of them have God's name, the first, the second, the third, and the fifth. The first only in the pronoun, thou shalt not, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That me, of course, is God. But they do not have his authority, nor do they have the territory over which he rules. Only the fourth commandment. I praise God that we are Sabbath keepers, my dear brothers and sisters. What a blessing, a blessing is the Sabbath. It is a thrill to keep God's holy day. For there is the seal of the living God. It is the commandment of character par excellence. Why? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy. As I said, when my brother and I were unconfessing in that sin and no doubt numbers of others, we went to church on Sabbath. We didn't work on Sabbath. We went through quite a lot of troubles not doing university examinations on Sabbath. All those things, but we weren't keeping it holy. We were keeping Saturday. We weren't keeping Sabbath. There's a whole lot of difference. And brothers and sisters, amongst our community, there is a tendency now I hear as I go around the world to refer to Sabbath as Saturday in our meetings. Let us always call it Sabbath. Amen. It's Sabbath. But we can be Saturday keepers. Go to church, preach the sermon perhaps, present the lesson, sing the hymns with great gusto, kneel reverently in prayer. But we're only Saturday keepers if we do not have our sins forsaken. Remember, the main purpose of the preparation day is to prepare our hearts. The second and very important purpose is to prepare our, our food and to prepare our, our clothing and, and so forth and our home for the Sabbath. That is important. But even more important is to spend those hours just before the Sabbath examining our hearts. Are we ready? Have we confessed and forsaken? Or, if necessary, in the case of uh, defrauding, made restitution? Because that's also important. Then we can keep the Sabbath holy. You see, if we have breached any one of the other nine commandments, we cannot keep the Sabbath day holy if we have not confessed it. We are living the sin of breaking the Sabbath because we have sin in our hearts. In order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy. We cannot go into the Sabbath unholy. And so the work of us today, in the year uh, 1999, my dear brothers and sisters, is to prepare our hearts to receive the character of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. How do we do this? Well, it's not a complicated matter. It's a matter of yielding the will, isn't it? That's what we all, it's a struggle. It sounds easy, I can say it very quickly, but it's a struggle. For all of us. But it's a struggle well worth making. I'm so pleased that our sister quoted that statement uh, from uh, uh, the uh, uh, Spirit of Prophecy in which she says that it was not a matter of being simply so easy to be saved. I seen two books in our ABC that carry that title. It's easy to be saved, hard to be lost. 
brothers and sisters, did Christ have an easy path in keeping the commandments? It was a struggle every day. But he has given us an example. First thing in the morning, let us yield our lives to Christ, just for that day. I think one of the greatest problems most of us have is that we think we can't obey God for all the rest of the life that he may give us. I'm bound to make a mistake. I'm bound to let down. But we need to be in an act of prayer always. Whenever a temptation comes to us, and it will come to us, many different forms, the moment we notice it, call upon Christ. I don't mean uh, aloud. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. No one's going to be lost because he is tempted. Christ was tempted far more fiercely than us. But we're going to be lost if we play with those temptations. If we say, well, I wonder if I will or I won't. Dear brothers and sisters, the time we recognize that evil is being foisted upon us in the form of satanic temptation. We cry aloud to the Lord. When I say aloud, I mean in our minds, aloud. I don't mean when you're walking down the street and you're tempted in some way that you shout out and all the people wonder what is happening. I'm not talking that. But we do solemnly ask God to guide us. Look, we're so weak. It's only as we yield our lives. Yield our lives to our God. And I think all of us know that God does answer that prayer of faith, that prayer of desperation. I cannot resist this temptation, but Lord, I don't want to do it. I don't suppose I've ever heard a sermon from Pastor Ron Spear in which he doesn't say we must be willing to be made willing. If he only says it once, that's one of his abstemious sermons. And I tell you it's so important, though, that's a spirit of prophecy quotation, as I'm sure you recognize. Because we really are not willing. And we have to ask God to make us willing to be willing. We, that's how far down we are as fallen human beings. And uh, I never get tired of hearing Pastor Spear exhorting us to ask God to make us willing so that we can be willing. You know, it's like the man who said, Lord, I believe. And then he knew there was some faulty belief, you know, some doubt. Oh, please help thou mine unbelief. That's how we are all the time. And God understands. Because we're told in the 18th verse of the second chapter of Hebrews because he was made like unto his brethren in all things in the 17th verse, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Why? Because he was tempted and severely tempted. And he will suffer us to be tempted. Brothers and sisters, the seal of the living God is ours through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his grace alone. But we must be willing to have him take our lives that he may place within weak people like us his character who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth may God bless each one of you as you ask him to make you willing to receive his character this is my great prayer in this year 1999, just prior to the great crisis of Revelation 13. Our Father in heaven, with awe and with reverence, we bow before thy throne. We recognize that if we, like the prophet Isaiah, could see thee high and lifted up and the train of thy glory filling the temple, 
that we would cry out that we are undone. And Lord, we are. But thou art the one who brings hope to our hopelessness, strength to our weakness, courage to our cowardice. And we pray that each one of us here at this holy convocation in this year 1999 we know not how soon it will be that this great crisis will come upon us. But when it does, may we be so faithful to thee that thou canst take us to heaven. May thy grace be all sufficient. May we trust in thee and in thee alone and, O oh Lord, when thou comest, may we look up and rejoice to see thy face, a joy beyond anything we can now contemplate. This is the burden of our hearts, and we pray for its reality in our lives. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>